Let's go one more time. Lord, as we now turn to Your Word, I pray that You would remove from us those things that would distract us from hearing so that we may trust and obey for our joy, for Your glory, and for the growth of Your kingdom. In Jesus' name, Amen. It ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Such was the worldly sage Mark Twain. There are some difficult to understand passages in the Bible. Make no mistake. Most of the Bible, however, is perfectly clear as to what it means. We just don't like what it says. And all too fast, God moves from preaching straight into meddling. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The passage that we're coming to tonight is not a difficult passage. There's nothing in here that you have to have a PhD to understand. There's nothing in here that's particularly obtuse. Don't you like that word? I threw that in there for you guys. Just, this is a, a, a really straightforward story that Jesus gives. He tells a, people, a story that the people can get, and he throws in a twist or two because he wants to keep people on their feet, and he makes a point. But you know what? We don't necessarily want to hear that point. Grace, my friends, is offensive. And you and I need to live in such a way that we are not offended. God's grace is offensive. Don't be offended. We are right in the middle of a section in Matthew where Matthew is particularly concentrating on discipleship. Now, it's actually kind of a funny thing to say because all of Matthew is particularly focused on discipleship because Jesus, Matthew wants you to get, understand, and live by the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18-20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. For I am with you always, even to the end of the age." But this particular section, this particular segment of chapters 19 and 20, Jesus wants you and me to get the idea that we cut off everything that we will not disciple. You remember we got that in Matthew chapter 19 the first time. Now tonight, we are going to see one of the most holiness-crippling, discipleship-killing attitudes that's possible jealousy and then after we look at jealousy we'll look at dr jesus's prescription grace grace that soft answer to a crying child who just needs you to hold her grace the ability to love where that love isn't deserved, grace. And who is the master? Well, Jesus, of course. Grace 
will kill jealousy or jealousy will kill grace. Let's start in our passage, Matthew chapter 20, 1 to verse 7. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go out in the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he says, you two go into the vineyard too. The scene pretty clear. It's harvest time. This rich guy needs laborers. So he's gone out and searched. He's not sending his foreman because the foreman's got to get the work done. So he's going out himself to hire people to go out into his fields. Nothing out of the ordinary so far. Verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired, hired at the about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Um, now, when those hired came first, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in all the scorching heat. Now, here's the twist. Remember I told you, pretty straightforward story, but he throws in a twist. And that twist is that the people who only worked one hour made a whole day's worth of wage. I imagine that the people who got there early in the morning saw the last people getting a denarius and they thought, man, we're going to score. This is going to be big time. Maybe we'll get 12 denarii. Who knows? But they didn't. And the twist is that Jesus seems to be advocating the equal treatment of unequals. Little seems more unequal than the equal treatment of unequals. If I can take a time out here, this is exactly what is going on in our nation today. Marriage is an equal treatment of equals. Those who can produce a stable family for production of a new generation of citizens ought to be rewarded by that society for their service. That is the entirety of the government's interest in marriage. There, there really isn't anything else for them to be interested in. And those who wish to engage in another kind of relationship outside of procreation and developing the next generation of the, of the family ought to be free to engage in those kinds of relationships. Everybody in this room has relationships all over the place. And we ought not to desire that the government gives us some sanction. Now, five oligarchs have decided to treat unequals equally. And we are on 
ground that has never been walked before might get a little bumpy. Back to our story. Jesus intentionally told this story with a twist. He was not advocating the equal treatment of unequals. But he wanted to give this description because he wanted to catch the hearer's attention. He wanted you to pay attention. You know, because if you've been to Sunday school for any amount of time, you just kind of get in the mode and Jesus is talking and you just, just kind of nod. Oh, yep, yeah, oh, yep, yeah, oh, yep. Yeah. And, you know... Jesus can talk about giving unequal treatment or equal treatment of unequals. And you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, what did he just say? This is meant to catch your attention. Don't ever let your mind go to sleep while you're reading Scripture. Because if you're finding Scripture boring, you are not reading it right. That is just a truth, my friends. And it might be true I wouldn't go to the wall for this, but it might be true that reading the Bible by just letting the words go under your eyes, I think that's probably worse than not reading it at all. Because you are intentionally disregarding, you are treating in a trifling manner that which is life. And my friends, we must not do that. Jesus gives a twist because he knew that those who really were paying attention would kind of go, huh? We've got to figure out what's going on here. Last week, we talked about sound investment advice. Jesus gave us clear, sound investment. Put your treasure in that which will not be destroyed. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is not giving management principles 101. If you run your business by paying the guy who works one hour as much as the guy who works all day, you will go bankrupt. But more than that, Jesus is illustrating an important principle about how heaven does business. Because heaven can't go bankrupt. And how heaven will do business when this twilighty day that we are living in is finally over and the sun rises. This, my friends, is a description of the equal treatment of unequals. When you are standing at the pearly gates, do not ask for justice. Do not ask to be treated equally. Ask for grace. Ask for the Lord to smile on you. In Jesus' name. Let's keep going. Verse 13. Jesus continues. He replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take then what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do, choose do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Jesus always saves the punchline for the end. And this one, that punchline takes four verses. Verse 13, he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Jesus gives the offended 
worker a mild rebuke. It is a rebuke, but it's a mild one. Friend, buddy, come on. Let's think this one through. He's not yelling at him. He's not, he's not throwing rocks at him. You know, sometimes I am tempted to drop the hammer like James and John did in, what was that, like Luke 12 when they were, uh, Jesus was walking out of the Samaritans. End of Luke 9 is what it was. But fortunately for us, Jesus is much more gracious. The landowner reminds the offended man of the deal, friend, I am doing you no wrong. And he's intentionally pointing back to verse 4 in this passage where Jesus says, whatever is right, I will give to you. This is justice. This is paying the debt. And this mild rebuke is meant to prepare us for the non-justice that will come. But let's get something straight now. In the end, there will be no injustice for the individual so far as God is concerned. Let me diagram this for you. We have on the big chart, justice and injustice. And on that last day, on that day when we all stand before the judgment seat of God, there will be no one who gets injustice. But in the justice side, there will be some who get justice and there will be some who get non-justice. And that that non-justice, you could think of it as two sides of, of one coin. Grace, it would be one side. And the same coin, the other side is mercy. Mercy is you not getting what you do deserve. And grace is us getting what we don't deserve. And this is what this story is all about. It's all about getting this non-justice, getting more than justice, getting more than what we deserved. The men who worked that day in the vineyard either got justice or they got non-justice, which in this case, as I said, was grace. They got paid a denarius for working one or three or six or nine hours, just like the people who got 12. But grace is better than justice. When you stand in prayer, don't ask for justice. Ask for grace. Ask for grace for everyone you know. Ask for grace for everyone you might know and that you wish to pray for, no matter how unequal that grace is. But now back to our grumbling laborer. The master says to him, Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, of course, the debt was more than paid. Generosity is in this, in, is in this parable by spades. Grace. Grace. Grace is just being poured out on these people, including the grumbler. Because he didn't get fire and brimstone cast on him for grumbling to Jesus right at that moment. He got a lesson. Am I not allowed to do, with, choose, do what I choose with what belongs to me? The answer is, of course, yes. And praise Jesus, God is allowed to be gracious and merciful. And the English of this next phrase hides a deliberate pun. He says, do you begrudge? And, and in 
the context in what he originally said is, is your eye evil? Now, if you just translate the phrases, do you begrudge me, is a good translation. But it's helpful sometimes to get to the, the root of what's going on. Do you begrudge me? Matthew, I'm convinced, is pointing to his readers back to the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil, now in this case, the, the pun is trying to catch this difference between healthy, good, and uh, unhealthy, bad, not being able to see. And he's playing off that because he wants you to get your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And he dives from that, from this spiritual analogy, physical blindness, spiritual blindness, straight to money. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let me stress that anyone who is willing to understand God's Word can understand it. You don't need to get a degree from a seminary. You don't need to read Greek. But there is an advantage because you can catch puns like this and sometimes it can open up other areas and that's why you come on Sunday morning and Sunday night. But verse 23, if your eye is bad or if it's evil, now certainly if our eye is bad and we can't see out of it, I'd certainly be tempted to call it evil, right? That doesn't take very much of an imagination. But Jesus' point is that if your eye is evil, if it chooses to see what is bad instead of God, then you will truly be in darkness. Here's the picture. What do you keep smack dab in front of your face all the time? What is it that your heart is valuing? What is it that your heart treasures? Is it a relationship that you really desperately want? Is it different circumstances? Maybe health, maybe, maybe circumstance with a, a family member? Or is it stuff? But whatever it is that you're putting up between you and God so that you're looking at it it will blind you to seeing God who is on the other side. And that, my friends, is an evil eye. That, my friends, is a bad eye. That, my friends, is what caused this particular man to begrudge the grace and the mercy that Jesus had given these other men. That jealousy is what blinded the man to grace. Being able to breathe and know the grace and the mercy of God that doesn't need to constantly be filled with toys and relationships and other circumstances that we long to have. If your eye is evil, then you will not 
be able to see physically or spiritually. And oh my friends, how quickly money will blind us. How fast we will look on the gold as it glitters and forget to think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. And instead, we will ignore the warning of Proverbs 23, 4, and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings and is flying like an eagle towards heaven. If your goal is wealth, it will lead you away from God. Now, I'm not giving a sermon on wealth. If I were, I would have some more to say about that. But covetousness or jealousy of someone who has wealth will blind you. Having your eye full of glittering gold will blind you. It will make your eye bad. It will fill your life with darkness. And one very dark kind of darkness is jealousy. Jealousy and his kissing cousin covetousness is a grace killer. It is a heart blinder. It is a mind number. I can't resist reading John Piper. Where our exchange for the glory of God, the value of God, the beauty of God, the all-satisfying worth of God. We have God and we have this in the Bible and He longs to reveal it for us. And we have this and what we do is we set it aside. Where that exchange is happening and our desire for Him and our satisfaction in Him is, going, is getting weaker, other desires are going to come in and fill the void. That is called covetousness. So instead of my picture of not being able to see God because you put this stuff or this relationship or circumstance between you and God so you can't see Him, Piper changes the illustration and he says, I could look this way and I could see the glory and the beauty of God or I can look this way and I could see whatever it is. It might be really good. A relationship that you long to be better. Not a bad thing. But if you value that over your relationship with God, you will be pulled apart. You cannot serve God and money. In this world, those who work harder ought to get paid more. That is true. It would be unjust to pay differently. But this story isn't about good business practice. This story is meant to startle you. It's meant to shock you into seeing, stab you into attention on how merit and ability take a back seat to grace and mercy in the kingdom of God. Your value, your wonderfulness, your beauty, your riches take a back seat to grace and mercy in the kingdom of God. And you ought to say praise Jesus for that. Let us not forget this story is about grace. Therefore, this story is about discipleship. Yes, it's about the end times if you want to go there. But the story is also about the here and now. Grace and mercy is meant to be lived right now. 
in your three-year-old's bedroom, in your office at work, in your car on the freeway, in the shopping center when you go to buy your groceries. Grace and mercy is meant to be lived at this moment. Not someday that we don't know when it's going to come. On the one hand, this story is about the fact that God's grace at the end of all things will be equal to everyone to everyone who is in his fields, who is working, who is loving God. And that grace will be to receive far more than they deserve. Now I don't think, as a side note, that this is a story talking about rewards. If you want to talk about that, we can talk about that another time. I don't think that's what he's getting at here. But when we get there, God's grace will be stunning. It will shock you who gets in. And it will shock you, probably, who does not. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you or did minister to you? When you get to the pearly gates, ask not for justice. Ask not for what you deserve because you worked in the heat of the day or you carried a heavy burden. Ask for grace in Jesus' name. And this story is about discipleship right where you are. It is about jealousy killing now. It is about covetousness killing now. This parable at the lips of Jesus is all about the offensiveness of grace in this life and is an admonition. God's grace is offended. Offensive. Do not be offended. Now let's be honest for a second. Let's take a step back. We are offended by grace. That guy over there doesn't deserve to be in. What is she doing going to church? Oh my goodness, can you believe the walls didn't fall down on there when she walked into that church? Grace is offensive. I want a handout. I work hard for my living. I deserve what I get. Grace is offensive. Hey, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm certainly better than that person over there. Grace is offensive. Don't be offended. Let it go. Because, frankly, you're not better than that person over there. The ground is level at the cross, my friends. We all come before Him broken and bleeding in desperate need of what He has to give. I remember a powerful lesson to me on this point. I was in college and I said to a friend, wouldn't it be great if Bill Gates and Michael Eisner came to Christ? Michael Eisner used to be the CEO of Disney Corp. Wouldn't it be great if Bill Gates and Michael Eisner came to Christ? And he said, yep, Jesus could do a lot for them. Amen. Because Bill Gates, 
Warren Buffett, whoever's the CEO of Disney now, God can do a lot for them. And he could use little old ladies who live in Santa Maria, California for his glory. He could use even me for his glory. Don't be offended by grace. Embrace it as the child who climbed onto the knee of Jesus a couple of weeks ago. Receive the gift of salvation like the boy who's being ripped out to sea by the rip current who is saved in the nick of time by his dad catching him by his arm. Don't be offended at grace. Don't be surprised that you can't do anything to earn heaven. Receive that grace, that vice-like grip that rescues you from certain death. Don't be offended by grace. When that grace that is offered to you is offered to that sinner over there, be the one who offers that grace. That is what you need. Don't imagine yourself better than that nincompoop. But are you better than that nincompoop? At some things. Maybe you pray better. Maybe you read better. But... Are you really deserving more of heaven, of grace, right now? We all stand on level ground. And if you consider yourself better, if you consider yourself unequal with everyone else, then you will be offended by the equal treatment of unequals. Don't be offended by grace. God must be very fond of normal people because he made a lot of us. And this story is about grace and discipleship. And therefore, it is also about the dangers of riches, the dangers of jealousy, the dangers of covetousness. And we were warned about this danger only last week. Peter said, see, we have left everything and followed you. What will we have? And again, Jesus answered him softly. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Having my heart and my mind and my eyes and my ears full of whatever stuff that I hanker for will blind me to the very basic spiritual truth that Jesus concludes this passage with. The, first, the last will be first and the first last. Now, obviously, we're supposed to remember we read this last week at the end of chapter 19. And I intentionally didn't comment on it then. But then, last week, it was a statement about the last day. Many who think that they are first and they put themselves as first and above everyone else, they're going to be at the back of the line. In fact, they're going to be in the wrong line. And that really is what it means to be last. But today, this kind of last means we're first, instead of putting ourselves first in line as the world thinks of it, we put ourselves last in line. And then, on that last day, if we're last in line, we are going to do an about face and realize we've been facing the wrong way. And if everybody in the line does an about-face, who's in front? And it won't be gold. 
It won't be healthy bodies. It won't be youth. It won't be any of the things that we treasure and chase after. It will be the glorious face of the Father who will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So how do we put jealousy to death? Let's wrap this up. I'm glad you asked. How do we put jealousy to death? The answer is always, always look to Christ, seek Christ, love Christ. Benji was exactly right this morning when he twice said, Greg's going to preach about Jesus. Come. This is it. Jesus is the answer, not stuff. And looking, seeking, and loving Christ means that we will find the appropriate commands and promises to trust. And we will trust the promises of God for us in Christ. So, here is an example of a prayer request you can start praying tonight. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Pray that. God tells you to pray something. If you pray it, guess what? He's likely to answer it. Amen? And here's an example of a promise. I'm always talking about promises and trusting promises. Well, here's one. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Back to that investment advice last week. Here is the investment advice today. Pursue godliness. Pursue holiness and be content. Because if you do that, you will have great gain. And instead of all the wealth of the world that we're not going to get anyways, nobody in this room is, instead of all of that, we will have that which is truly valuable, that which truly is treasure. Be content in God. How do we become content in God? Incline your heart to His testimonies and not to monies. How do we have such a change of heart? Ask Him. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. My friends, Christianity is not complex. It's simple. And here is a passage that really is not a hard passage to understand. And you and I can take it. and Take it better than any bank you've ever seen. And if we do, we will be blessed beyond our wildest dreams. Lord Almighty, once again, we cannot do this. We are small and we are sinful and our eyes are blinded by the God of this age. Help us, Lord, to see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus so that we will not be tempted by that which he bends, baits his hooks. Amen.